I'm very fortunate in respect to the fact that I think of myself as a broker and a headhunter, and all I do is matchmaking with my existing network. Now, I do have a level of scale. I have managed to build a database now of over 3 million people across Europe and, and North America. And I'm very specialized in the areas I focus. As the Americans say, there's riches and niches or niches, as we say, in this part of the world. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Ross Lauder. Ross has a talent business. So I wanted to know what's happening in the marketplace. But before Ross was a talented headhunter, he was actually a tech salesperson, sales manager. He's worked for the likes of Dell and HubSpot. He's based in Dublin, but the work he does covers Northern Ireland, the Republic, the UK, DAC, and the USA. And he places salespeople of all types of stripes and colors and marketing roles, that whole go-to-market piece, and also dev, although dev is less of what he does. So we talk about what's happening in the marketplace for salespeople across Europe and North America, what's happening for debt, what's happening to dev talent, what are people thinking about return to work, work remote, hybrid, and what's happening to salaries, what's happened to the marketplace for talent. Have the big tech layoffs meant that their world is awash? With talented people or not, I ask that question and we find out the answer. We talk about how to attract people, talk about how to retain people. We talk about what Ross's view is of a sales process, what he finds often working with clients. Amazing conversation. Really enjoyed talking to him and some great insights for those of you who are in the position where you're still growing your dev and tech teams. Enjoy. Hi, Dominic. Ross Lauder here. Delighted to be on the show with you. I've come from a background of being a computer scientist by training and navigating into business. I suppose I've spent my career in sales by happenstance. Never thought it's a career. You don't wake up a youngster and say, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to sell stuff to folks. But I really think it's a matter of problem solving. If you can help others get what they want, you'll want for nothing yourself. I think that's an important philosophy. Um, I've spent what's nearly been two decades in the tech sphere from a hardware and software perspective and accidentally tripped over my shoelaces one day and fell into recruitment whereby I find unicorns, rock stars, multilingual folks and everything in between for a lot of the US-led SaaS companies as is the trend today in uh, this world that we live in all over Europe and North America. So I'm looking forward to the discussion today. So you said you see sales as problem solving. So you are not coin operated then. 
it's it's a very interesting dynamic. I actually have had the good fortune of working with a guy at the moment over the last 12 months who is setting up a academy dedicated to becoming a sales professional. I think sales very much has been a, a dirty word, an icky feeling, a salesman is somebody who's grubby and not to be trusted and you don't see it as a vocation and in fact a skilled salesperson absolutely is and why i think we're not coin operated is because it was too easy to do that in the past if you think about the sales process in years gone by when you and your family got in the car and, and trotted along to um, Dixon's maybe in the UK or something like Curry's, et cetera, you know, you go go to buy a washing machine, right? And you, you'd go up and you'd beg for um, information on why this washing machine is a good one. And you'd hope that, that the salesperson is telling the truth to you. And you'd walk away or you'd have it delivered a few days later to your home and it might break down in three months. Those days are gone. And they're gone because... A tribesman in Africa has access to more information on a phone than the president um, Nixon did in his election campaign in the 70s. And that, that's the reality of the new world we live in. It's completely and utterly democratized the purchasing process. So today, your buyer is becoming or is more informed than they've ever been before. And it actually furthers the, the sales process. I had the good fortune of working at HubSpot before they went IPO. And their language around this and their philosophy is that 70% of the buying journey is completed before you ever speak to a salesperson. And you see this around a lot of the more mature economies around, certainly in, in the Germans, the English-speaking parts of Western Europe and North America and, you know, in Australia. And so they're much more informed. I think that misrepresents the place of sales in that process. Because I, I think your man at Dixon's is a bit like an estate agent, right? I don't think an estate agent ever in the history of the world persuaded somebody to sell a house that hadn't already decided to sell a house. And therefore, I don't think estate agents are salespeople in any way, shape or form. What you do is you pick the least slimy one and you, you give them the job. I think the job of sales is to persuade somebody to do a thing that this morning that they weren't actually going to do when they were brushing their teeth. And it's that sort of, it's not manipulation, but it's, repositioning it's something it's problem solving right so it's helping you solve a problem and you didn't know we could help you solve the problem so you weren't going to ring us i i think you're absolutely right that if there's a if you know as a customer what your problem is you can get you get all the way down to wanting somebody to help you buy but i think in that case you're taking an order well rather than necessarily selling I used to think that about the Dell. I know you're at Dell. I mean, I, you know, a lot of the Dell sales process, that brand, people went, I'm going to buy Dell, not HP or not IBM. And then they speak to a Dell salesperson and it's yours to lose, not yours to win at that point. I think the Dell example is an interesting one because they were very much a underdog brand and their product was, and their sales process was so efficient and their quality became better that yes, there were certainly elements of Dell that were order taking. I worked there for many years and I would attest to the fact that there was a lot of that because what they did very, very well was execute on marketing and demand gen. They were doing faxes before that was a thing, which is now email marketing. They were doing brochureware very effectively and their whole objective was to get the phone ring. Now, what I will say about Dell is that if you're a sales guy in Dell and you're getting a laptop phone call in for £299, as was the case 
at the height of uh, when I left, whereby that laptop was originally two grand. You can be sure as shit that you weren't making money on that as a sales guy. In fact, you had to upsell at least Microsoft Office and a warranty to break even in a lot of cases. So that became the, you know, from an incentive, from a rep perspective, a lot of those deals, in fact, had to go online because you couldn't make money on them. But I take your point, and I think that's fair, you know, from a brand perspective, that a lot of folks were becoming order takers. Now, as you move into more sophisticated, more less commoditized items in the enterprise where they're a little bit more margin rich, and there's a solution to be had by way of setting up a data center, putting software on top of that, having a fiber channel recovery system, you know, backup and, and restore and such. That's a bit more of a sophisticated conversation that requires somebody who, quite frankly, knows a little bit more. I think you're right, though. It depends on the product in terms of that problem solving piece. I'm a firm believer that a good salesperson knows when to shut up and ask good questions. So ask good questions and knows when to shut up, should I say, in that order. Meaning that the goal of marketing is to earn the right to have a conversation. A lot of people think that marketing is to take the sale. It's not. Now, it depends what you're selling. But if you're selling a software solution that's, you know, a subscription base that's certainly around the 10K plus a year mark, you're not taking an order for that product a lot of the time. You're, you're having a conversation that determines the need factor and the emotional reasons for that buy and then backing it up with justifiable, logical reasons to confirm the sale. So that's kind of the way I think of it. A good salesperson. I mean, the conversion rates in SaaS from a pipeline to sale perspective, sale perspective, bear that out. You're looking at converting, depending probably about 30% of your lead base into active pipeline and then closing about 30% of that. So any good sales manager will have a 40% coverage ratio on their number to make sure they can hit their number. So that, that's kind of the way you like to think about it from a RevOps perspective, if that makes sense. It's funny, isn't it? Because Peter Drucker said years ago, 2000 and six or something the purpose of any business is to create a customer which then he said that means businesses only need two functions marketing and innovation because he had sales in there as an extension of marketing not a thing on its own but it's amazing that that whole go to market piece is still underrated you know for some clients i'll do some solution selling coaching or training and you know one of the clients i did some work with corporate finance house and they're sort of 50 people. I said, right, I'm here to help you learn how to become better at sales. Tell me what the word sales means. And people went slimy, slippery, untrustworthy, unethical. It's like, okay, let's not train you to do any of that. Let's train you to influence people better. It's just fascinating. But then you went from, <laughs> you went from sales to recruitment. Yeah, another industry that's heralded as being very ethical and non-slimy, you know? <laughs> you said it was problem solving. So what problem were you solving? Were you solving a problem for yourself or were you solving a problem for somebody else? I felt there was an opportunity to actually get the process right and be transparent. And our testimonials bear that out. Um, one of the things I say to people is, you'll always get the truth from me. And, you know, most people say to me, oh, I've never heard back from a recruiter or they told me what I wanted to hear. I never heard from them again after that. Um, and I just felt it was very, very broken. I'm very fortunate in respect to the fact that I think of myself as a broker and a headhunter and all I do is matchmaking with my existing network. Now, I do have a level of scale. I have managed to build a database now of over 3 million people across Europe and, and North America. And I'm very specialized in the areas I focus. As the Americans say, there's riches and niches or niches, as we say in this part of the world. You've got to be really, really focused, you know, inches wide and miles deep, right? 
there's no point in trying to spread yourself thin and being all things to all men in terms and on women now in terms of like trying to cover multiple disciplines we are very specific in what we do but i just felt it was very broken i felt that nobody was really adding value up front nobody was engaging and um, saying they could solve a problem or saying to a client or a candidate that this is a fit or not a fit and advising. And I think saying no as well a lot to people, clients and candidates, that what they're trying to achieve is not a, is not appropriate or not a fit. And I think people respect that a little bit more. Um, you know, there's a lot of recruitment who they'll go and poach somebody from a job in XYZ company and then call up XYZ and said, oh, I see you, have somebody lo- you lost somebody recently. Do you, do you want me to help you replace them? Knowing full well they've taken them out of that job or they'll do things like double dipping is another one where you'll take somebody out of one job and then go back to your client you've placed in, um, maybe not the exact candidate, but try and take their candidate to move them on. I don't believe in any of that. I think it's rubbish and it'll only play itself out and you'll be found out because I'm a big believer things come out in the wash, you, you know, eventually get found out. Well, I, the, the practice that I find still going on is the, uh, the recruiter says to their customer that or client, that they're an expert and that these 10 CVs represent the best people on the market. And therefore the client feels that they should hire the least worst or the best of the 10 people that they've been put in front of them. And in fact, that might be a fraction of the available talent on the market, but they're the only ones that the recruiter's got and they're trying to push them on the can. I mean, I've seen that loads of times. You know, they're, the recruiter's not on your side. He's on his side. He's not on the side of the client or the candidate in most cases. He's got a vacancy to fill with somebody and he gets paid if that happens and he doesn't get paid if it doesn't. So his incentive is to fill it, not to fill it with the right person or leave it vacant. Yeah, it depends. So, so there's a couple of things there. You're, you're talking about contingent recruitment, which is kind of like the no win, no fee of the lawyer game, you know, which has its place. And I respect the fact that if you're trying to prove yourself to a client and they don't know you from Adam, that that might be an appropriate way to go. There's a lot of people who'll get involved with a client if they're one of five and they're trying to get a race to the bottom on fees. I I don't believe in that. I have no problem with competition of one or two others. And if you're trying to prove yourself, I'll do that. I wouldn't believe in pushing 10 of the cat. And if you're sent, quite frankly, if you're sending 10 CVs, resumes to a client, you haven't done your homework and it's a fire and forget, throw spaghetti at the wall, hope some, some of it sticks type of approach. You don't know their culture. You don't know their interview process. You don't understand what a rock star. I always ask the question to a client, what does a rock star look like in this role and why? How often can they answer that question in a meaningful way? About 20% of the time. And they would have carried on recruiting even if you hadn't asked them the question. And so you ask them the question, 20% of them know the answer. The other 80%, obviously you're coaching them to understand what that might look like. But that's why interviewing is so often broken. It's not actually the fault of the recruiter. It's actually internally, the client doesn't know what good looks like. So some random person turns up and they go, oh, I like them. And they hire them. And then six months later, they've let them go because it didn't work out. And they just didn't get clear on what they were trying to hire. It's amazing. Here's the thing. There's law that exists to protect people against this. And it happens all the time as the, so it's not legal to, interview people on different criteria and make subjective decisions because you can't defend that position. Why do you like that person? Oh, I just got a good vibe from them. You, you can't hire someone on that. But now the likelihood of that ever coming out in a courtroom is very, very small, but you can't in all good conscience in reality or legally hire on the basis of a subjective random 
disjointed interview process. You can't do it because it's not transparent and it's not also more importantly, it's not scalable. And what that's one of the big things I see is I often get brought in as companies are scaling. We've had the good fortune to work with a lot of tech companies as they've grown from 10 people to a thousand people. And one of the things they really, really got right is their interview process was standardized and it was defensible and it was the same for everybody that went through it. So it was a three-stage interview process. It was a screen with a recruiter, it was a screen with a hiring manager, and it was a panel with a presentation. Everyone did the same thing. And here's the thing, and this is a big mistake. Everybody was given a chance to get their homework checked with the presentation. They were all given a template. I even went to the extent of showing people what a good presentation looks like and saying, let's have a catch up for an hour the day before the day of your presentation. And and not only did I do that, but the in-house recruitment team did it with my clients to make sure that they weren't going in to a shit show, quite frankly. They were going in representing themselves well. The goal of the recruitment process and the interview process is not to deliberately catch people out. It's to actually show that people have the competent skills to do the job and they can actually be trained on everything else. So they actually have the personality, the presentation skills, the human being characteristics, right? To be able to be a culture fit and they can teach everything else. If you are an employer and you're trying to deliberately catch people out, you're fighting a losing battle. I've had this so many times and they've fallen on their face. If anyone can take anything away from this, do not deliberately try to catch people out. I, see, I think the goal is to hire everyone you interview. And so that's what your process is trying to do, that you're trying to say, well, how do we make it so that everyone's got their best foot forward, everyone's well prepared? The people who don't want to be prepared won't turn up. You know, that you won't, you won't end up interviewing them because it's, you know, I'll, I'll be involved in an, an amount of recruitment throughout the year with some clients and they send a CV in and then you ask them some follow-up questions that's it. They've gone. They didn't like, they didn't like the questions you asked them and they've decided this is all too difficult and they've dropped away. Whereas in lots of clients that have gone, okay, CV, phone call, let's have them turn up. And it's, and it's about their mistakenly belief that like if we, if we interview 20 people, we'll find the best client, the best candidate. You're much better filtering hard early and interviewing a smaller number of people. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And like you said about 10 CVs or resumes earlier, if you're sending 10 across, you're, you're already on a losing streak. I think that's really important. And the other question I like to ask is, why would somebody want to join your organization? Why are you like, why are you attractive, right? So it's a bit like asking or telling people inadvertently their children are ugly, right? Why are you attractive? Tell us your story. So as you know, I run a podcast as well, the Global Tech Leaders Podcast. And the purpose of that is to interview interesting people who are personally very successful and professionally very successful to tell their career journey. And secondly, to tell their company journey and their USP, their go-to-market, why their tech is exciting, except why they are in that company. Because I want candidates to be excited. So we do that on the front end with our clients and we say, hey, Tell us your story. And then in the interview process, we then pitch that podcast back to our candidates. The candidates then listen to it and they get excited. I'm not here to sell a job to a candidate. I'm here to help them with their career. I want them to come back to me and say, I listened to that. It's fantastic. Tell me more. And I then filter them on my calendar. You don't get on my calendar unless you ask, answer the questions. And if they put in blank NA, I'm canceling that meeting. So in order to get on my calendar, you have to self-qualify yourself as being a fit. And then I'm saying to the client, I have candidates here in my database who've listened to the show, 
who put their hand up proactively and said, I'm interested in what you have to offer the world. Even if people aren't working with you, I mean, again, you know, I look at a client's website or a prospect's website, somebody's looking to do some work with me and I go, how many people are you thinking of hiring in the next 12 months? And they give me a number and I go, you've got nowhere on your website for those people to go and find this information, right? Like, why would they want to work with you? What's good about working here? And you've got nothing, you know, because that, that podcast that you do, if people aren't working with you, they could do that themselves. You know, somebody could interview the CEO. We could have a 20 minutes. What's great about working here? You could speak to some employees. You know, you could have a careers page, do some work to make your business more attractive. I agree. And you should do a pack. I always do a pack as well when I'm pitching to candidates or I'm talking to candidates. I say, here's some information I think you should research. And I always want to make sure that that information is validated by a third party. So it's Crunchbase, it's LinkedIn, it's other things that's not PR related. So you're trying to create an inbound methodology or an inbound way of people becoming interested in that play or that organization, if that makes sense. But I think you're dead right. People think they're great but they either don't tell the world or they haven't quantified it in any great sense. Totally. So um, look, you've got 3 million people in your database. What news in the press every day about large tech firms laying people off? Has the market turned upside down? Is there now thousands of people, great salespeople looking for work across Europe? Absolutely not. No. And it's a great question. And I'm really glad you asked that question because... There was a statistic that struck me, as you probably know, in Ireland, we have the, you know, EMEA HQ for our LinkedIn, Facebook, Salesforce, Meta, Dell, you know, the list goes on, Microsoft, etc. And Stripe was one of the ones that really struck me. And I think Stripe is quite a, an interesting one because in their communique, and, and we've obviously got the Twitter scenario happening as well at the moment, but I think Stripe's an interesting one because the two founders are brothers. They're from Limerick. They went to Harvard together and they're, they're big employers, but they, they were very candid. They sent a very long email to their employees and they said, we've made the following mistakes around our product, around our go-to-market, et cetera, and we're going to have to make some cuts. It's on us. But here's the thing. We're now in the month of November heading into Christmas period and their hiring numbers are now back to what they were in February of this year. And that's a lot of the nuance that people miss is that the hiring levels of some of these organizations, I've seen it across a number of other different clients, particularly US tech, where they're growing at the certain tech companies were growing at 60% year on year. Dell was doing that in the good old days in the 90s and the early 2000s. And they've now, the stock market expectation then goes like this up and to the right. And some of their businesses were accelerated or catalyzed by COVID. And the stock market then assumes that that will be the continuation post-COVID. What COVID did was it forced digital transformation in certain organizations. And there was tech picking up that all day long so that their employees could stay working and stay productive. And as the office and, you know, big, big, big investments in real estate happened, those organizations had to shift back to make use of that real estate that they had invested in. And I, I could cite a couple of examples of that. Pre-COVID, they'd invested in huge pieces of land and building that they have to make use of because it's sat in their balance sheet. They need to make use of it. So that's the first thing I'd say. And the second thing I would say is that for recruitment, this is actually a great time because I can guarantee you the people being let go at the moment are the last in the door and likely that those not performing. Um, and, and I know that firsthand. My wife works in the tech arena as well. And the guys being let go in the better companies are the guys who are not performing and the guys who joined more recently. So are there great salespeople out in the market at the moment? Not, you know, out of a job? Yes, but there aren't 
that many of them. And actually, a recruiter's job today becomes filtering through the noise because you're going to be in a situation and the good ones will find the people who are good, filter them effectively because that's what a good recruiter should do and bring them to opportunities. And your completion rate is actually better because you're looking for somebody who's more likely to take a job in a downturn, who is qualified, who is good. And I think from a client perspective, they win because they get the best people that they need um, and they get to filter through. 95% of people who apply to a job for board are not qualified for an opportunity. It's a disgrace. That's why I exist. <laughs> well, the thing is, it's, I talk to people all the time and I say, talk about your process. And I've got lots of clients who I think until I said to them, you know, this, this is an opportunity for search, would have just put up an ad on a job board. And 5% of the people that will apply are qualified, but the rest of them are either unqualified or unemployable. You know, you just, I see it myself. You just get 10 CVs from people and you think, I don't even know why the, why you even clicked apply. I mean, it wasn't even, you are so unlikely to be interviewed for this job even though it only took you 10 milliseconds to press send that was it was a waste of your time and you're obviously misguided about what jobs you should apply for and what you might get is the availability of talent still tight across the whole of europe it is tricky it depends on the market so the markets that i see a challenge in are the ones that you have more mature economies where there's high demand. So for example, um, German speakers is a large part of what I do because when I was a sales manager myself, 40% of my number was from the DAC region. And for the listeners who don't know what that is, it's Deutschland, G for Germany, A is Austria and CH is Switzerland. So it's the German speaking part of Europe, which for me was 40% of my overall number as a sales guy. The UK, Ireland and Scandinavia and kind of Northern Europe was, was 40%, was the remaining 40%. Now in the Scandinavian countries and the Benelux countries, you can largely do business in English as you're scaling, but you obviously... Ideally, you're, want, you're going to want to have Dutch and you're going to want to have Norwegians the best to get because they can speak better Swedish than Swedes can speak Norwegian, even though it's, it's a very similar language. But that's what you're going to want to have. And the Germans are very, very sophisticated in terms of the prevalence of tech. They're very mature buyers and you really have to have something different and they're in high demand. And as Ireland is a center in Europe for tech, convincing Germans to move to Ireland can be tricky. So that's where I see a lot of demand. There's also a huge shortage of developers. Developers are in massively high demand. And I think COVID has taught us that you can actually work anywhere. And it was very much the case that Eastern Europe and India and certain parts of Southeast Asia were on substantially less salaries than the West and North America and Western Europe. That's no longer the case. So you can earn a Western salary quite comfortably now in any part of the world if you have developer talent and experience. And that in and of itself brings additional challenges. So, you know, we have a very low, low corporate tax rate here in Ireland, 12.5%. You can get that down lower if you create IP and ship product from here. And there's lots of different tax schemes that, you know, the financial services sector in London would be very familiar with. They're very similar schemes, quite frankly. But part of the deal is that you employ folks, that you actually have a critical mass and a significant presence, as they're a, our version of HMRC call it here. So you got to have a significant presence. And that in and of itself creates challenges. So particularly during COVID, you had an issue of folks going back to their their home country 
because they wanted to be with family. And if you stay more than 180 days in another jurisdiction, you create a tax problem because you're paying tax in one jurisdiction, but you're getting all your services in another jurisdiction. And um, now in the UK and Ireland, that's allowed because we have a common travel area and we have a, a an agreement between us because of our history. Colonial legacy. A legacy. Let's call it a legacy. Yeah. I'm not going to go into the details of this. I think that's been done before. And that's a topic for another day's discussion. But my point in saying it all is you can't live in Ireland and pay taxes in Germany or vice versa or France or any other country for that matter. EU notwithstanding, there's situations in other jurisdictions outside the EU as well. My wife had an instance on her team with, with Russia, for example, and which is a whole other thing since the war. But there's tax obligations in those jurisdictions that you, you have to meet. And now companies are trying to position the fact that they're work from anywhere and that they're, you know, you can work remote in your home country and all that kind of good stuff. That's fine in theory and it can work, but you've got to be aware of what you're getting into. And companies who are new to this game get it wrong all the time. And what they try and do is they try and set up that facility to do that. And that involves usually outsourcing to a third party. So if you have one entity in one com- in one country, you usually employ people in that entity. That's the normal way of things. If you're employing somebody in another country, you either have to contract them to the main entity host country, or you have to contract them to another entity that you've outsourced that to and have that entity contract back to you. So they're employed. The Germans are big on this because German employment law is widely different to anything we have here in Ireland. Ireland is seen as a very much, in the UK to an extent as well, very similar common law countries where, you know, we're kind of a halfway house between the US and Central Europe. Central Europe, you have things like the Workers' Council, you have very highly unionized countries. The US, there's certain states where it's right to work uh, or it's at will employment where they can say, I don't like your hair color today, you're fired. And, and that's it. And that's completely legal. That would never happen in Central Europe. So you have to understand that if you're going to do that and you're going to allow people to work on a German contract in those countries, you have to be willing to sign up to the law. Whereas if a German moves to Ireland and is or the UK and is subject to that employment law, they're subject to the law in that country and the tax benefits of that country as well as the host country and the host company. So I just think clients and employers need to be very aware of those nuances. It's also very difficult to scale that and your administrative overhead of running multiple payrolls and tax obligations from a corporate perspective and a VAT filing perspective are burdensome to say the least. So it can be done, but you just need to be aware of what you're getting into. And so what are you seeing emerging maybe across Europe as trends in terms of work from home, work from the office? I can see why as an employee, if I think about what's best for me, and I I think about company culture often as the, is your culture good enough to let people pay the commute tax? Right. So if we've built an amazing business, people will probably come in. If our business is a bit air and the job's a bit air, like why would I travel? If I'm just doing a job that's just a job, I'll just may as well do it from home. But if, I've, if there's a compelling reason to come and hang out with people, if I'm sociable and the company's sociable and we're on a, we've got an interesting purpose and we're on a mission together, then doing it together becomes exciting. But what are the trends that you're seeing across Europe in terms of maybe countries and types of job? It's very interesting you say that because um, it's very difficult to build a culture in a born remote company. And I, I've seen it done somewhat well, but I've yet to see it done very well. I've seen people do it in a hybrid fashion. And I I liked your analogy around the commute tax. And I think that's exactly what it is. You 
cannot beat the face-to-face interaction of meeting somebody in person and collaborating on a day-to-day basis and being in a team environment. I've um, just come back from a trip to a client in Rome last week, and they have a very kind of not strict is the wrong word to use, but a culture based on being in person. So they allow 45 days of remote work per year, but they're situated in a very nice part of Rome. Their business was founded in a luxury villa. And over the years, they've acquired other buildings around that center location called One Through Six, Villa One Through Six. And they have a seventh one, which is their luxury retreat in Tuscany. But all of their staff, so you might have account management, you might have finance. They also are an investment, an investor with an incubation arm, and they have different startups in incubators throughout these. They have six luxury villas with huge gardens, with swimming pools, with a full-time masseuse, a gym, et cetera. And what they do is they rotate the departments every two months so that you don't get bored. That's culture for me. That's hard to beat and that's in person. And everybody is, is more than happy to do that. But I like the, instead of saying, you've got to come to the office two days, three days a week or two days a week, you say you can work from home 45 days a year. That, I could do a month working from somewhere. That, that starts to become, I've got an option. I can see that there's a benefit attached to that rather than about an obligation. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a very nuanced discussion and it's, it's very unique to every company. When you're talking to candidates, has anything changed? I mean, pre-COVID, the norm would have been in the office, particularly, I guess, in Dublin for most of these tech firms. COVID, everyone went home. What are the best candidates saying to you in terms of their preferences? Depends on the profile of the person and the company and the candidate, the role and function. So developers are in a category all on their own. I think it is, for my particular client, I mentioned, I won't mention their name, but developer talent to relocate is a challenge. Most developers, regardless, want to be remote. And that's just considered the norm. I've spoken to very, very senior VPs of developer, you know, VPs of product, et cetera, who run development teams have said, I will do in-person or I will do remote, but I will not do hybrid. So it seems to be one or the other. And I, and I can see why that makes sense. But from a salesperson's perspective, the more junior, the more open they are. And this kind of makes sense if you think about it logically. The more junior a candidate, the more they want to be in an office. And it makes particular sense if you're relocating. So if you're a grad and you're kind of 20 to 35 in age profile and you're going to move from Central Europe to, you know, our part of the world and you want to learn English or you've, you've maybe done a semester abroad, you really want to solidify your English and you have a native European language and you go jump into a sales job, you don't know anyone. So going to the office is a key part of your social structure, your outlet. You want to make friends, you want to get to know people. And it's going to be a large part of the experience you have. During COVID, there were a lot of cases of candidates I spoke to who had just moved within a matter of weeks, had got an apartment down in, you know, docks in the financial district or the um, silicon docks, as they call it here. And they hadn't met another human being in weeks and they just moved to a new country. That's not fun. Nobody wants that. As you get more and more commitment to the company that you're in, maybe you decide to settle down. People either go back to their home country when they've kind of reached the three to five year mark and they they probably don't have a significant other at that point. If they've come here and they've met somebody, if they've met someone from their home country or from another European country, that's a different situation. 
but they could have met somebody locally, in which case I know uh, some of my really good friends who've been here 20, 25 years have made, I mean, they're more Irish than the Irish themselves, as we used to say when the Normans settled in Ireland centuries ago. But it's that kind of um, mentality. It just depends on the direction of your career. But the younger folks want to stay here. If you're trying to relocate somebody who's in Central Europe with a young family, it's near impossible to do, quite frankly. You were saying earlier, your US-based tech firms who've spent millions on office property, they've moved to a let's get everybody back most of the time model. Yeah, no, they definitely have because they've made big commitments. And it's ironic because some of the older ones, the old school ones like Oracle have gone the other way and they have a massive amount. They've like 3000 employees here. They have a massive campus. They were in a situation where they wanted a building in an office park and there was a pension company owned it and they wouldn't sell. So Oracle bought the pension company and moved the people out. I mean, that's the kind of power they used to yield. And Larry Ellison from his island in, um, in Hawaii, in Lanai, sent an email to the company and said, you can all work remotely forever. I mean, that was a big turnaround. But a lot of the tech companies who are newer to the game, who probably don't, like Oracle probably don't have debt on a lot of their property, whereas the newer guys would do. And they probably need to make use of it and, and make it, make it uh, profitable, et cetera, on their P&L. Because it's a big, big thing on their balance sheet right now in liability terms. So that, that's my sense of it anyway. Okay. Um, Ross, what is it you know now you wish you'd known earlier? I suppose as I've become weary, weary and worldly-wise, I don't know, I think enjoy the journey is one of my lessons, you know. Don't always be waiting for the big hit. Enjoy the journey. Continually refine your process so that you're continually improving and looking for those 1% gains and enjoy the journey and the challenges along the way. I think that's probably the chat I would have had with myself in my early 20s that I know now, as it were. (laughs) Very good. And what's the podcast again, your podcast? The Global Tech Leaders Podcast. Fab. So that's good. Subscribe to that. What books should people read that you think would be helpful around this topic that we've been chatting about? There's a couple I've read in my life. So I'm, I'm, I'm reading an interesting one by a guy called Keith Barry, who's a magician, illusionist, mind mind manipulator. I don't know what you would call him, but it's a book called Mind Hacks. It's a very good steer on, he's he's quite big in, in Ireland. He's, he's, he's had a good career in the US, et cetera, as well. It's an interesting dive into how the human mind works, how we have natural biases, how he absolutely doesn't believe in psychics or fortune tellers, how he can call them out, how he can replicate what they do. And he says, there's a 10 grand prize for anyone who can prove to me they're psychic and they're not. It's just a good way of squaring away your ambition, having a plan, those sorts of activities that are very helpful. A couple of books I read during the course of my kind of career that I, I suppose, I read Unlimited Power by Tony Robbins when I was 17. That that was a game changer. And Awaken the Giant Within. I mean, they're, they're just incredible books. The other ones, you know, Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich, Robert Kiyosaki's um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad is another fantastic book for anyone in business, just from a philosophy and a practical, philosophical and practical perspective. They're probably some of my most important books. That's brilliant. And if people were going to change one thing tomorrow about their recruitment, what do you think is the most impactful thing that you see work with clients? Be very conscious about your outcomes and your process is what I would say. Spend time. I I like to really get people to put brain juice, as I call it, into writing a job description. A lot of the time, 
I spoke with a, an Irish business recently that's scaling up. And rather than rather than put the time I feel into defining the outcome they're looking for in their sales process, they want to hire a quote unquote young, hungry, cheaper sales guy because that's what the budget's dictating and that's their appetite to risk. Yeah, so you're you're holding your head in your hands here because I, I suspect you've seen this before in your business. Yeah. Do you know what I do is I say to people, look, if you were Alex Ferguson and you won the European Championship, you didn't go, ah, next season, my plan is to not hire somebody better than Wayne Rooney. It's to hire somebody cheaper and shitter. Like never want, never in a professional sport, you know, okay, you might build an academy and you might try to build your own talent for five years in the future, but you wouldn't go out of your way to hire somebody cheaper. But I see that all the time. And I point it out to people and then they realize but before I've pointed it out, it seems completely rational to them to do what you said. It's like, oh, I need somebody cheaper because that's what's in the budget. So there's a couple of challenges with that, right? First of all, what's your sales process? Who have you rolled this out to before? What type of profile are you going to get for, you know, that sort of money? I won't mention figures, but what sort of profile? You're looking at a grad. I mean, they said to me, you know, somebody around, you know, kind of the 30 years of age mark. And I said, okay, interesting. Do you think that person is going to have enough experience to write a sales process themselves to put that into CRM? Do you think that person has a pitch created? Your product is really simple, is it? No, no, it's very complicated. Okay. Do you think that person, and you're trying to ask respectful questions, right? Because you don't want to point out some of the calamities, right? And come across as being the know-it-all. But do you think that person is going to have the wherewithal and the technical acumen and experience to understand that product and its value in the marketplace and approach people cold? And then it becomes, well, what, be and we talked about marketing and demand gen a little bit earlier. What does that look like? Oh, we don't know. So is your plan to take a brochure and have someone go and put it under their arm and start knocking on doors? Is that the idea here? Because that's the way it was in the 1950s. Excellent. Excellent. I, I, I was reflecting the other week. I wrote, a, I wrote a blog about why you should go now and hire more senior salespeople. And I was just thinking about, you know, what I had done in my career and what I had learned. And that was hire better people quicker, particularly in sales. And I, and even sales directors, I think that whole, could they build a process? I think somebody who can run a process and somebody who can build a process are completely different. And I reckon only one in 10 of the sales directors I've ever interviewed could even answer the question, how would you design a sales process? It had never occurred to them because they'd never had to do it. And that's, much more entrepreneurial type approach, you know, somebody who can create order out of chaos versus can just run a process. I agree with you. You should hire competent, decent, good salespeople. If you can get rock stars, great. If you can get the exception, however, do not hire a rock star assuming they'll fix your business, number one, and do not hire a rock star assuming you can get them at a graduate level because you're not being fair to them. If you have a decent process, you should be able to scale hiring decent to good, good, good to exceptional salespeople, right? Nobody wants to hire average to poor, but hire decent to good, you know, you know, exceptional salespeople with a really robust process. And one of the things that one of the VPs that was my boss said to me a long, long time ago, she was a pretty miserable boss, I won't say you, but there was one thing that stuck with me, which was expect what you inspect. And I think that's very, very true. You know, expect what you inspect, what you're checking on a regular basis, and it comes back to your process. You know, don't leave somebody. The worst thing you can do is hire that amazing salesperson 
assume they're going to fix your business and have them just go out into the field and hope the revenue will start coming. That's not life. Ross, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.